Well, uh, good morning. Uh, like Pastor Michael shared, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Uh, it's so good to be able to worship with you all uh, again this Sunday. Uh, let's continue uh, in our worship by opening up our Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Uh, we're going to continue our series through the Gospel of Mark. Now, um, you know, it's awesome that I could preach back-to-back Sundays, but I have to confess, uh, last week's passage was just so powerful and so hope-filled. Uh, today's passage is a bit, uh, it, I think it's going to wound some of us uh, in, in, in a good way. Uh, so it's just really interesting to see this very contrast of uh, what Jesus experiences and goes through. Uh, you know, last week we just finished a trilogy of uh, Jesus performing these amazing miracles. He calms the storms, uh, calms the storm with his disciples. Uh, he exercises uh, a man possessed by many demons. And uh, last week we saw that Jesus heals uh, Jairus' daughter and, and a woman that's been hemorrhaging for 12 years. Uh, and just amazing uh, miracles and wonders that Jesus is able to do. And Jesus is the one typically to amaze people. Uh, people are shocked and amazed at Jesus, but for the first time in the Gospel of Mark, we are told that Jesus is amazed. Uh, he is marveling. Uh, and I want to find out why uh, for us uh, together to find out why Jesus marvels. So uh, let's give our full attention as I read Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to him, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is God's word. Amen. You know, I love stories of individuals born in very difficult situations, difficult circumstances. They, their, their whole lives is a struggle. Uh, but they go on to succeed. And uh, a lot of these stories we see in athletes or musicians, and, and upon their success, they, they come back home and they give back to their community. Uh, we know uh, people like Kevin Durant or Marshawn Lynch or LeBron James that uh, struggled in their childhood, uh, but they su- went on to succeed, and they returned back home, uh, and they gave back to their community. And um, when they come, in their homecoming, they're celebrated. Uh, people are thrilled. Um, they call LeBron James a king. The king has returned, uh, and, and they celebrate him. Uh, this is the story of Jesus. Uh, Jesus had a very interesting and humble beginning. Uh, he was born in the manger in Bethlehem. Uh, Jesus' parents uh, were, were rumored uh, to be uh, unfaithful. Uh, they were also on the run because the current king wanted to kill Jesus. Uh, they are moving all about. Um, This was not a a very good beginning for the Son of God, the King of Kings. Uh, But after moving around constantly, they landed in a place called Nazareth, uh, where he grew up for the most of his life. Now, the problem with Nazareth is uh, that it was nowhere. Um, There's no mention of it in the Old Testament text. Uh, And when people heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, uh, they would respond like this, Can anything good 
come out of Nazareth. Um, the California equivalent uh, would be, can anything good come from Lucerne Valley? Does anyone know Lucerne Valley? Exactly. No one knows where that is. Has anyone been there? Exactly. No, one's, no one has been to Lucerne Valley because it is a desert city. Uh, it's on the fringe of society, and, and no one knows about it. No one visits there. No one wants to uh, vacation there because there's nothing there. Uh, that is Nazareth. And Jesus, the King of Kings, uh, the Son of God, came from this place. Uh, it, it was a, a mountainous, uh, stony uh, village. Uh, but Jesus eventually leaves Nazareth to uh, begin his ministry. He travels teaching and, and performing miracles, uh, and his fame has grown. Everywhere he goes, there's people wanting to catch a glimpse, to be next to him, uh, and to experience his amazing teachings and um, witness one of his amazing miracles. And so you would expect a great homecoming, uh, wouldn't you, with someone like Jesus? Um, he actually literally put Nazareth on the map. Uh, no one would have known about Nazareth if Jesus wasn't from there. Uh, he put Nazareth on the map, but instead of being embraced and celebrated and welcomed, uh, what we find is that he is rejected. He's rejected by his hometown. Um, and the question is why? Uh, so three things for us, three ideas regarding Jesus' re uh, rejection. First is the reason for this rejection. Secondly, is the response to this rejection. And lastly, for our application, what does Jesus' rejection mean for us? What does it mean for us? So first, the reason for rejection. So Jesus is back home, and he's invited to be a guest preacher in the synagogue. And he is crushing it. He is, he is just destroying uh, uh, this sermon that he's giving. Right? In verse 2, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get, uh, get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Right? And nothing surprising about this so far, because uh, wherever Jesus went and he was preaching and teaching, people were like, Whoa, he's ex expounding and explaining the law in ways that I've never heard before. They were astounded by his ability to teach God's word. And, and so people are astonished. Um, but not only is his message amazing, uh, the word has got reached Nazareth, and he's able to do some amazing things, exercise demons, heal the sick, heal lepers, uh, uh, heal paralytics. He's able to do all these things, and, and his hometown knows about these amazing acts of Jesus. And as they're thinking and listening to Jesus, their astonishment turns into skepticism really quickly. Uh, where did he go to school? How does he know these things? What gives him the ability to heal and exercise demons? So doubt starts to set in. And uh, for the people at that time, in their way of explaining, there's only two options in explaining why Jesus is so amazing, right? First option is this. He got it from God. He got this ability to teach, ability to heal from God. That was option number one. Option number two is he got these abilities from Satan. Uh, this is what the religious leaders thought when Jesus cast out demons. He's saying, Jesus cast out demons by satanic powers. That's how he got this ability. I believe they were leaning more towards the latter option. Um, verse 3, 
Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Joseph, uh, Jesus' dad, was a carpenter. And by trade, Jesus, too, was a carpenter. Now, when we think about a carpenter, we think of, uh, you know, someone that makes ta- wooden tables, wooden chairs. But uh, because Nazar- Nazareth was surrounded by uh, a mountainous, stony area, uh, most likely his main uh, object that he would work with was actually stone and not, not wood. Uh, but all to say that he was a, a builder of things. Uh, he worked with his hands. He was a blue-collar worker. Uh, and he had no rabbi- rabbinic background. Uh, he didn't go to the best seminary. He didn't sit under the best rabbi. Um, he, he didn't have a, a seminary degree. And so they start talking about Jesus' biography. Right? Isn't this a carpenter? And then they ask, isn't this Jesus, the son of Mary? Now, this is where things get a little bit personal. Um, usually, when you would um, explain someone's background, they would talk about their father, right? Uh, this was a patriotic, uh, uh, um, patriarchal uh, society, and so they would actually mention the father's name instead of the mother's name. But why here uh, is Jesus mentioned as the son of Mary? Now, some people say it's because uh, Joseph, at this point, uh, his dad may have passed away, uh, but I don't think that is accurate. Uh, he is probably mentioned as the son of Mar- uh, Mary, and this is... It, it's, the language is very derogatory, actually. Uh, now think about it. Why, why is that? Why do they mention Mary? Um, didn't Mary have Jesus at a wedlock? Right? Uh, he's an Ill- illegitimate son. Before getting married to Joseph, she was with child, conceived, right, to the Holy Spirit. Now this is scandalous, right? And this is known about Mary and Joseph and Jesus was born out of wedlock. So this was a very derogatory reference to Jesus being the son of Mary. And also, they're like, don't we know his siblings? Jesus had four brothers, and he had two sisters, and, and they're with us here. Right? Astonishment turned into being offended. He's a fraud. He can't be the real deal. He's possessed by a demon. He must be out of his mind. And that's exactly what his family, his own blood family thought of him, that he was out of his mind. These were probably the sentiments running through uh, the people of, uh, in the minds of the people of Nazareth. He can't fool us. We know who he is. We know his family. We know that he didn't go to seminary. And so they took offense at him. And the word offense in Greek is scandalon, right, where we get the word scandal. Jesus became a stumbling block Uh, Jesus repelled and turned off people. What was the reason for their rejection? Why did they reject Jesus? They had had evidence right in front of them. They heard it from Jesus' own mouth, the ability to teach and preach, and they knew that Jesus had the ability to heal and perform miracles. If anyone is going to understand and get Jesus, it should have been these people, right? But why did they reject him? Here's the explanation. It's because Jesus was too ordinary. He was too pedestrian. Their picture of the Messiah didn't match the profile of Jesus. They couldn't get past his humanity that he identified with 
a family, that he had a childhood, that he came a place from like, uh, like Nazareth. And this is a scandal of the incarnation. Jesus, who is God, transcends time and space, but in his incarnation, he broke into time and space and dwelt among men and women. He didn't fit their mold. The reason why they didn't, he, Jesus didn't fit their mold is because they were misinformed about the Messiah, the Christ. John 7, the Gospel of John uh, chapter 7, verse 27, gives us a hint that people had the wrong idea and a misunderstanding of the Christ, the anointed one. But we know where this man comes from, talking about Jesus. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Again, this is misinformation. They were misinformed about the Old Testament prophecy of Jesus Christ. Jesus' birth in Nazareth fulfills Old Testament prophecy according to Matthew 2, 23. And prophecy tells us in Isaiah chapter 53, 1-3 that Jesus will come in a very unimpressive, unattractive way. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus didn't fit their mold because their mold was the wrong one. They were looking for the wrong features and credentials in the Messiah. So we took a, take a look at Nazareth and the rejection, the reason why they rejected Jesus. And, and, you know, we shake our heads like, man, they're so dull, so thick-headed. How can they get, get Jesus so wrong when he's right in their face? Brothers and sisters, I'm convinced that, that we reject Jesus for the same exact reasons today. But our rejection isn't as blatant. Our, rejected, our rejection of Jesus is more subtle and disguised. My fear for many of us is that we're unknowingly rejecting Jesus. Now, let me explain. See, many of us, we, we have for ourselves a makeshift Savior. We fabricate for ourselves a Jesus that is more palatable for our taste. We water him down. And so we follow our version of Jesus, and as a result, we're rejecting the real one. And historically, this has been true. People either have diluted Jesus' divinity or elevating his humanity, or they they reverse it. They dilute his humanity and elevate his divinity. And this is where all sorts of distortion and false gospels come from. And we do the same. We want to make Jesus too human, which decreases his divinity, or we make much of his divinity, and we decrease his humanity. No, Jesus is fully God and fully human, and there are some very important implications to that doctrinal truth. But all to say, what we see in Nazareth still happens today, even amongst us. We get Jesus wrong. We want to make our, for ourselves a makeshift savior, And that's why we're seeing a trend in today's Christianity, and this is what I like to call it, low-key discipleship. Low-key Christianity. 
We've created a self-Christian culture where half-hearted obedience is allowed in our discipleship. We do this buffet style of Christianity where we pick and choose what commands Jesus is convenient for us. When discipleship actually calls us to an absolute surrender and obedience to Jesus Christ. We also selectively read the Bible. Take what we like and ignore what we don't. Right? Give me the Jesus that welcomes children. Right? Give me the Jesus that hangs out with outcasts. Give me the Jesus that talks about the poor and social justice. Don't give me the Jesus that tells me that i got to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him daily. Don't give me the Jesus that tells, uh, tells us about marriage between, being between a man and a woman. Don't give me a Jesus that teaches about the wrath of God and talks about hell all the time. Don't give me the Jesus that tells me that I can't serve God and serve money. I can't have two masters. Don't give me that Jesus. The thing is, the Nazarenes didn't have the entire Bible like we do today. Brothers and sisters, we have full disclosure of who Jesus Christ is, Old and New Testament. We are held more accountable in getting Jesus right. But so often in our selfishness, in our desire for our own pleasures, we get Jesus wrong. And therefore rejecting him on a regular basis. Nazareth teaches us this. Familiarity can make us lazy and can lead to apathy. This happens to a lot of us who grew up in the church, who grew up in a Christian household, who grew up listening and hearing the gospel. Knowing the gospel does not equal discipleship. Obedience is what makes us followers of Jesus Christ. Familiarity can make us lazy and apathetic. Very, very simple example of this is marriage. <laughs> After a while, we get familiar with our wives. And so you get lazy and you stop trying. You assume that the marriage is going well because you're staying married, right? When actually your love has grown stale and there hasn't been growth in your relationship. Familiarity isn't a good basis of qualifying a relationship. Just because you're familiar with each other doesn't mean that the relationship is healthy. This is true for our relationship with Christ. Do we have the right Jesus? Are we worshiping and following the gospel Jesus? Or are we making for ourselves a makeshift a savior? Let me ask you this. Has Jesus ever challenged you? Has he ever rubbed you the wrong way? Has he offended you? If he has not in your Christian journey so far, are we following the right Jesus? Brothers and sisters, friends, do we have the right Jesus? Or in attempts to have one foot in the world and one foot with Jesus, have we created a hybrid savior which ultimately results in rejecting the real one? How did Jesus respond then to this blatant rejection? He shares a very popular saying, in response, to this, in response to their rejection. Verse 4. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. Now, this was a very uh, popular saying in truth. Prophets in the Old Testament were anointed by God, um, acknowledged by their people, of being messengers of God, having the word of God with them. 
right? They were respected. This was a, a very highly honored and respected office in God's people. But their job was extremely hard because sometimes they'll come with message of blessing, but other times, a lot of times, their message was of judgment and God's wrath. Can you imagine always being the bearer of bad news to your friends or to your family? That was the prophet. That, that was the Old Testament prophets. Jeremiah and Ezekiel being one of, just two very clear examples of how hard it was to be a prophet of God, to always be the bearer of bad news. Right, Jeremiah's nickname was the weeping prophet. If you have a chance to read that, that, that book, man, it's depressing. Uh, Jeremiah gets beaten up by his own people, imprisoned by his own people, just because he's mess- just delivering and relaying the message that God told him uh, to share with his own people. Right? A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and his own household. I, over time, I've come to understand this saying very personally. My version goes like this. A pastor is not without honor except in his home, with his wife and his children. Right? My preaching is not well-received when it's directed to my wife. Like, stop preaching at me. Right? What was the impact of their rejection towards Jesus? Verse 5, and he could, not do no, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, it seems like the lack of faith drained Jesus of his powers. That is why he's unable to do more, but that is not accurate. Uh, Jesus is able to heal regardless of faith, and we see that constantly in the Gospels. Uh, But rather, Jesus wasn't free. It wasn't wise for him to just perform amazing miracles and heal and, and do all these things in light of such skepticism, doubt, and confusion about him. There's, there's such wisdom in Jesus. Because is he going to chop, chop, chop the tree down when people are resisting him? Like constantly resisting? No, I'm going to prove to you guys. I'm going to just do more. No, they were convinced that Jesus was not who he says he was. Right? He's, he's a carpenter. He's, he's the son of Mary. For him to continue to do the work of miracles and, and, and just miraculous things actually would have done more harm to these skeptical people that have rejected him. That is why he wasn't able to do as much out of wisdom. right? Because it would, it would have just fueled more dissension and hatred towards Jesus. It would confuse them more. And so Jesus exercises wisdom in limiting himself. But yet, the compassion of Jesus, he still, he still healed some. Then we are told that Jesus marveled. Jesus marveled. And this is one of two places ever recorded in the gospel narratives where Jesus marveled. What did Jesus marvel at? Verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Unbelief. The other time Jesus marveled was uh, the faith of a centurion, a Gentile, who believes that just by Jesus' word, remotely, you don't need to come to my house. All you need to do is say the word, and my servant who is ill will be healed. A Gentile, right, believes that Jesus, just by his word, can heal his servant. The two instances where Jesus marvels is one is radical unbelief, and the other is radical belief and trust. Ask yourself today, which marveling would Jesus do with me? 
or with all nations? What, 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 what kind of marveling would Jesus do if he was here and he knew what was within our hearts and our minds? See, we hear things like this. If Jesus would just show up, if he just would show up in my life, if he would answer this prayer, if he would give me this blessing, then there will be evidence. Then I would have faith. Brothers and sisters, look at the Gospels. People actually saw Jesus, heard from him, and saw him perform miracles, and yet such radical unbelief. Let's not fool ourselves in thinking that if just Jesus did something for us, that we would believe. Because I know Jesus has done things for us, for you. I know very specifically because I'm praying for you and God has answered them. But yet, your lives are filled with anxiety and insecurity and unbelief. Why is that? When there's evidence. My goodness, we're born in America. Freedom of religion. By God's grace, you're born into a Christian family. By God's grace, you hear the gospel Sunday in and Sunday out. God has answered some of your big prayers, huge prayers. But yet, why is our hearts still filled with such radical unbelief? Why is this? When we have the Bible, when we have the real Jesus, why do we have such radical unbelief? Is it because we have the Savior wrong? Uh, Do we think our Savior is our circumstances? Do we think our Savior is our our life circumstances and situations and these these? blessings that are so temporary? Could it be that we've missed the point, we missed the Savior when actually Jesus is saying, I am your Savior. Nazareth didn't get it. And many of us, we don't get it, but I hope that we can. I hope that we can. But notice how rejection didn't stop Jesus from his mission. The second part of verse 6. And he went about among the villages teaching. The rejection of his own hometown did not stop Jesus from doing his ministry. Two lessons for us, and this is what we're going to close with. What what does Jesus' rejection mean for us? First thing is this. Jesus right now, at this moment, is setting something up. He's setting the stage for something. He's setting the stage for his disciples and what they're ultimately going to experience as well. They too will be rejected from their own. See, rejection is an inevitable reality for anyone that's following after Jesus. Not only rejection, Jesus goes as far as to say that they're going to hate you. They're going to hate you because of me. They're going to hate you because you bear my name. And this is so scary for someone like me, where my idol is approval and acceptance. If you're following after Jesus, rejection is inevitable. Hatred is to be expected. You know, this weekend I had, uh, with, my, with our mission ministry, I was able to attend a mission conference. And there was about 40 missionaries there, and they're just sharing their stories. And it's just so sad, because once they decided to respond to the call to go out on the mission field, do you know who rejected them? It wasn't their coworkers. It wasn't their acquaintances. It was their own family. Their family rejected them. They didn't agree. They stopped talking to them. Their closest friends would call the the mission agency and say, don't let them go. That's how, 
That's how they're rejected. By answering the call to discipleship and making disciples of all nations. Yes, even those closest to us may reject us because of our obedience to Christ. And the question for us is, then, how are we going to persist and continue the mission of Christ in light of such devastating rejection? The answer is found in the ultimate rejection of Christ. See, the rejection of Na- at Nazareth is a foreshadow of the ultimate rejection of Christ on that cross. So the first lesson of Jesus' rejection is that we too will be rejected. The second lesson for us in Jesus' rejection, what we find is that his rejection awards us our acceptance. His rejection awards us acceptance because Jesus is ultimately rejected on that cross because of us. He's crucified on that cross, paying in full the cost for our sins, even though he was sinless. It is his blood that makes us clean and acceptable. Not only, though, did he die for us, but he rose again, giving us his very righteous life to be ours. Brothers and sisters, this is the highest level of acceptance anyone can ever hope to experience. This is the highest level of acceptance and approval that we we, we can ever hope to experience in this lifetime. See, even if I mess up today's sermon, which I may have, my wife and kids at home, they're going to embrace and accept me. Why? Because I'm their father. Uh, They're not going to evaluate in how I did on this sermon and then say, Dad, come home and play with me. No. Just just because of the fact that I am their dad, they accept and embrace me. Brothers and sisters, we are accepted based on the performance of a perfect Savior. Jesus' performance does not have an expiration date, meaning its value is eternal. When we place our faith in Jesus, God doesn't see our shortcomings or our inadequacies, but he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. When he looks upon you and me, he doesn't see how good of a week we had. He doesn't see our good deeds. He doesn't see how, how much money we gave or what, uh, what mission, missions uh, activities we were a part of. No, he sees his own son. That's what faith does. Our acceptance is based upon the eternal, finished, perfect work of Jesus Christ. And nothing can change that. This should give us such great peace insecurity. If it doesn't, then I don't know what else will. To know that God, the creator God of this universe, accepts and approves of me. See, the world may reject us, but in Christ, we'll be forever accepted by our Heavenly Father. This is the gospel message. This is what's going to allow us to take risk, allow us to be bold about our faith, allow us to sacrifice all these temporary things and to pursue after Jesus Christ and the mission that he has set before us. It's this divine approval and acceptance of God. Brothers and sisters, let's follow the Jesus of the Gospels, not a Jesus of our own liking, 
May our discipleship be costly and sacrificial. And when, not if, we do experience rejection and hatred, let's be reminded of this divine acceptance and approval that we have in Christ for his glory, but ultimately for our good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that in Christ, that we are accepted, that we are approved. Thank you, Lord, for taking that rejection on our behalf, the ultimate rejection, the condemnation, the judgment, the wrath that we, were deserve, uh, that we deserve to experience. You laid it on your son so that we can be cleansed and we can be clothed, clothed with the righteousness of Christ. God, I pray that you will help us to follow after um, the real Jesus. Not a more palatable, more, more easier to swallow Jesus, but the Jesus that we see uh, in the Gospels that calls us to a total and absolute surrender of our lives. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive me, Lord, for rejecting you. God, I ask that you call us out even if it means for us to be rejected, that you'll call us out to proclaim the beauty and worth and the excellencies of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, we need your help. Give us boldness. And when we do experience persecution and backlash and rejection and people talking behind our backs, Lord, may we be reminded of the gospel truth, that you love us, that you accept and approve of us, even though the world may reject us. Help us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your love. Help us to, help us to love you in the same way. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.